Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for bringing us all together to share not only our good times, but also the sorrowful times that we are all <coughs> encountered with. So ask, we'll ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts to what is talked about today in the lecture and the questions that also come. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Well, today will be a little easier on you. I won't throw so much detail as we did last week. Uh, but we had to do, you know, a, a number of, of things that uh, always have to be done for the first meeting. And for those of you who are joining us today for the first time, we welcome you and we hope that you can get caught up with some of the details that we talked about last week. Um, it was sort of an overview of what we're going to be doing. And again, this class is going to be on a study of the Jewish people and the history of the Jewish people from the time of Moses to Christ. But we do have to go back because we have to understand where Moses came from and what preceded him, because Judaism, as I said last week, uh, actually begins with Abraham, who uh, lived roughly 500 years before Moses. Right? Although Moses the mo is the most influential person in the entire Old Testament, influential person, that is, human being, uh, of course, if I would say it any other way, that would exclude God, and of course we can't do that. Because it was God's implementation of his plan of salvation, which began in earnest with uh, the call of Abraham. And so that's what I would like to talk a little bit about today. The call of Abraham, who he was, his family, uh, because the family uh, concept is very important, particularly in the Old Testament. It's also important, of course, throughout all of, history, all of history and all of God's plan of salvation. But it is more evident in the Old Testament and particularly in the beginning. Because that is how God started um, his plan is with Abraham and his wife and so forth and we'll get into a little bit of that uh, in a few minutes <clears throat> there's a couple other things I wanted to sort of remind you of that this plan of salvation is extremely important you're going to probably be tired of me talking about it uh, at the end of this ten, ten weeks but it's something I really want you to get to understand because, as I said last week, everything that God did, does, and will do is in connection with his plan. It's his overall objective of trying to bring sinful mankind back into the good graces of God so that they could return to him in heaven at the end of their time and at the end of all time. And that is, in a few words, that is the, the essence of God's plan of salvation. But he had to do that with the use of a number of partners 
we talked about partners in one of the previous uh, sessions here, that God chose uh, I'm trying to think of, of the, the proper words here, but he chose ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And that is how Abraham got to be chosen as the beginning. Prior to the call of Abraham, uh, most human beings on this earth had no concept of the spirit of God. Uh, no concept of a God who created all mankind, created all uh, things um, for this one purpose of returning and reciprocating uh, with God's love. And they lived, that is the people prior to Abraham, lived according to their own tribal customs and the best that they could figure out. Most of them had some concept of, of a God, and most of them just took various things that they could see, feel, and touch, and claimed that they were gods. And as you know, the Egyptian people uh, had several gods. They worshipped statues, and they worshipped the elements, such as the sun and the moon, uh, and so forth. They worshipped animals. Uh, but they did not have any concept of the one true God that we know of. To my knowledge, and to most theologians that think about it this way, Abraham was singled out from a nomadic tribe in the land of Ur, which we believe to be somewhere in the area of Iran or Iraq today. And it was because he believed uh, in a God, with no detail, of course, who created the heavens and the earth and mankind. And that's as far as he got, because that was all there was. So many people are so quick to criticize people of the past, and yet they fail to realize, that is the people who are criticizing, it is fa they fail to realize that these people didn't have 4,000 years of experience like we have. And the history that we have, and all of the studies that theologians and scientists, etc., archaeologists and whatever, have given us. So, to go back to these very primitive people, when I say primitive, I really mean inexperienced, because there just wasn't any experience uh, for them to take, or understand, or read, or whatever. That doesn't mean that they were dumb, or you know, couldn't uh, think of things for themselves, sure, they just didn't have anything to measure it by. So, they were very primitive. You may wonder, why did Abraham, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, why did Abraham uh, run out to meet these three strangers? And I'm assuming you just all read the book of Genesis, then. Yeah. Uh, I know that's a bad assumption, but uh, I, I'm hoping that you know that at one point in time, 
Uh, Abraham ran out of his tent because he saw some strangers coming, and he ran to meet them and, you know, practically begged them to come in and sit down and uh, have food and wash their feet and, I assume, hands and face too, but uh, it doesn't say that. Uh, why was he so anxious to do this? Because in that country, at that particular time, strangers were the only way to meet people with different viewpoints and to see things in a different way and to bring information from far-reaching countries. So it was, you know, almost like the daily newspaper. I'm not so sure that that's a good analogy, but you know what I mean. It is their way of absorbing new things and new ideas. Now, the other, every time I read, read that story, it says Abraham, you know, went quickly to his wife and said, quick, measure three measures of flour and make some bread. Well, anybody that's made bread knows that you can't do that in a matter of minutes. And then he went to somebody else and said, kill the fatted calf or whatever, and, you know, cook it and so forth. Well, you know, you can't do that in a, a short time. But you see, the writers of those stories were not interested in that kind of accuracy. All they were interested in was telling a story, a story that had a point and a meaning. Right. The meaning, of course, in this particular case was these three people probably represented God and the Trinity. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. We don't know for sure. There's no way. But all indications are this was one way of God blessing Abraham and his family uh, is to bring three people now that we can, we know about the Trinity, of really representing God in the Trinity. And it was through them that they promised Abraham uh, a son. However, what we really want to talk about is the call of Abraham, and that call was signified by a covenant. A covenant that God had made with Abraham way back in the land of Ur, and he asked Abraham to move, move his family, his flocks, his animals, and so forth, and so on. Well, that was quite an undertaking. If any of you uh, have moved recently, like I did in the past few months, uh, you know that it is a big job. Okay? And I had downsized uh, my... Uh, possessions, you might say, six years ago, and then I did it again uh, less than six months ago, and it is still a big job. Well, Abraham had not a family, but he had a wife, and he had servants, and all of those people, he had uh, people that would take care of his flocks and so forth, so we're not talking about just two people. We're talking about a whole group of people and all of their animals went with them from the land of Ur all the way over to what is now the northern part of Israel, primarily the city of Shechem. Okay. 
So that was a great undertaking. But in the process, in the process, God promises Abraham that he would take care of him. He would promise him descendants, because Abraham says, well, how do I know, Lord, uh, that you're going to do all of this? You're going to give me all this land and so forth and so on. But if I don't have any heirs, it's going to go to my servants. And that was the custom at the time. The head servant would inherit everything. So God says through these three strangers that he would receive an heir. That he would then, that heir, through that heir, which turned out to be Isaac, he would actually have a multitude of, of descendants. In fact, he took Abraham outside and showed him the stars uh, in the sky. And he said, count them if you can, and this is the number of descendants I will give you. Of course, he was referring, as we look at it now, to the whole (laughs) Jewish population. Uh, the, The last statistics that I have read is that uh, the Jewish population who uh, accept and recognize themselves as Jews, regardless of where they are, uh, amount to about two and a half million people, okay. which is a relatively small number of people of the earth. And I really kind of think it, it probably is more than that. But that is the last statistics that I've heard. Anyways. The whole idea of Abraham now is to fulfill the wishes, the command of this God who has made himself known to him. And of course, the writers of the book of Genesis, and remember the book of Genesis was written around the 5th century B.C., long after the other four books and many of the uh, the other four books of the Pentateuch or the Torah, that is uh, uh, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy were written. This is long after because when we believe the uh, priest I, Ezra, Ezra brought all of this history that we had talked about last week together and sorted it out to make what we look to today as the Old Testament he then kind of thought, well, you know, there's no beginning. Because we're talking about Moses in the book of Exodus, but who is Moses, where did he come from, and how did he get to uh, Egypt in the first place? So he writes the book of Genesis. Now, he's writing about historical events, that took place. Yes. That's right, and I'll get to that in a few minutes. Okay. And well, I might as well do it now because <laughs> throughout the Bible, beginning with Abraham, God changes certain people's names. Anyone? have an idea of why. 
Mm, not exactly. Not exactly. It is because it signifies that they have a special role in God's plan of salvation. Now, let me just do a quick erase. If you read the early part of the book of Genesis, Abraham's name was Abram. And his wife's name was Sarai. Alright. Because of the covenant, which we'll get to in a few minutes, that God makes with Abraham and what he asks him to do, it signifies by the changing of the name that there is an important task or an important role for him or them in God's plan of salvation. Now, he doesn't do that with Isaac or Isaac's wife, Rebecca. But when we get over to Isaac's son, Jacob, Jacob's name was Jacob to begin with, but it got changed to Israel. And again, that is to signify that Jacob had a very important role in God's plan of salvation. He was the father of the twelve tribes that you often hear about. And we'll talk about that not only today, but in the next few weeks, because the whole idea of the twelve tribes is very important. But this sets up a real confusion, because... Israel became the name of the country. And quite often when you read later books in the Old Testament, it is difficult to understand whether they're talking about the country of Israel or the person whose name was Israel. Now, Jacob had two wives and two concubines, which was acceptable to those people in that particular culture. Uh, so don't misunderstand that. From those four women, he had 12 sons. The second youngest of them, the second youngest of the 12, was Jacob. I mean, Joseph, sorry. Second youngest. He was the one that the father loved the most and doted on and so forth and so on, even made, Jacob made a very fancy uh, cloak for Jacob, and for, for Joseph rather, and it made the brothers rather jealous, and they decided that they were going to uh, do away with him by killing him, and then they finally decided, well, that wasn't the right thing to do, so they sold him off to a caravan that was headed towards Egypt. Again, that was part of God's plan of salvation, this whole idea of migration into Egypt. But we're getting a little ahead of our story here. All right. The call of Abraham is significant, and with that goes this idea of a covenant. Now, a covenant is different than a contract, 
but there are many similarities. A covenant, in, particularly in this case, is where God gives himself, God gives himself to someone and expects that someone to return or reciprocate with the giving process, all right? Giving himself back to God and fulfilling his role in God's plan of salvation. All right. <clears throat> in this case, the covenant that God makes with Abraham had three main elements. Descendants. And as he said, and as I mentioned earlier, he did have Isaac. But he he was quite elderly. He and his wife were both elderly when God appeared to him and made this covenant with them. And God promised that he would have a son through these three strangers that I mentioned earlier. But it didn't happen and didn't happen and didn't happen for years. And Sarah, or Sarai, um, and Abraham prayed and prayed and prayed. Finally, they got tired of praying uh, and decided to take matters into their own hands. And Sarah decides that she should give her uh, maidservant to Abraham, uh, and hopefully they would have a child through Hagar, the servant. And they did. That was not part of God's plan, and even though God honored Hagar and Ishmael, the son that was born, uh, he was not part of God's future plan. It was not until uh, much later that Isaac was born, finally. Um, but I, what I want to do is to get back and discuss what a covenant is, because a covenant is extremely important, and I've written this, or taken this, uh, description here from the uh, Dictionary Concordance for the New American Bible. And I'd like you to, I hope you all have a copy of it, because I want to go through this in detail, um, because it's important and it carries over. Now, God made covenants with other people, such and the most noted one prior to Abraham was with Noah. You all know the story of after the flood receded and Noah and his family came out of the ark and so forth and so on, God made a covenant that he would never again destroy the earth or people in such mass quantity like that. And by doing so, he had this rainbow in the sky because every covenant must have some sign, some I don't mean billboard sign, I mean some significant element to it, all right? Those were different kinds of covenants, and God made covenants with other people down through the ages, but 
This one that we're talking about here is called the First Covenant uh, of its kind. And I want to go through it in detail here because it's important and the whole idea covers the entire Old Testament. The covenant made with God, uh, made, uh, that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15 was an absolute and unconditional promise confirmed by oath expressed by God in rites that were used by men at that time to sanction a solemn obligation, and that is to give Abraham and his family, or create a family through Isaac, and also give him land, which was therefore the promised land. That's the beginning of the promised land. It comes from this covenant, and it is the land of Israel. Now, that covenant was made with Abraham through Isaac. However, and I, I don't want to digress too much on this particular subject, but many people believe that Ishmael, the son of Abraham and Hagar, was the father of all of the Arab nations. And because he was the firstborn, that is where they claim that they have a right to Israel or the Palestinian area. Okay. So that is the basis for their argument that they have a greater right than the Jewish people today who came through Isaac. Uh, God says no. That Abraham stepped out of his role and had relations with Hagar and that was not the son of the promise. And Paul goes into a great deal of explaining that in one of his letters. All right. He calls it the son of the promise versus uh, I forgot how it, how it does it, but that's not that important. Let's go on. It is not, however, bilateral in obligations. God alone, by his promises, pledges himself. This promise, however, demands that man respond with faith. Abram put his faith in the Lord, who credited it to him as an act of righteousness. And Paul refers to that again in one of his letters, as does the writer of the letter to the Hebrews. The version given in the priestly tradition of the Pentateuch, remember priestly tradition, that was one of the four sources of history that went into making up the Old Testament that we talked about last week. Uh, the priestly tradition of the Pentateuch of the same event is not substantially different. Circumcision, which was one of the outward signs of this covenant, is not what God demands in exchange for his promised gifts. Rather, it is a sign that man himself has responded in faith 
and because it is something visible and external, it is a sign that the covenant has taken place. Now, where in modern Christianity, Christianity and particularly Catholicism, do we have a duplicate of that? In baptism, yes. Circumcision to the Jewish people is a commitment to God through Moses. I don't know why it's Moses, because it really started with Abraham, but they always say Moses, okay? Baptism is a commitment to God through Jesus Christ. So, please don't think that baptism is just for children and you go home and have a big party. The whole idea of baptism is just as solemn as this statement says right here. It is a commitment to God through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the pact par excellence between God and Israel is that sanctioned uh, is that sanctioned on Sinai, Mount Sinai, whose mediator was Moses. The Sinai covenant is inseparable. This is a renewal of the covenant God made with Abraham. Uh, and now he is making the same type of covenant with Moses with exactly the same ingredients. All right. But it gives a little bit more detail. Okay. The covenant is, on the one hand, placed in relationship with the past, that is, with Abraham, as the fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham. On the other hand, it looks to the future as a decisive passage towards the possession of the land. That was the second part of the uh, promise or the ingredient of the covenant made to Abraham. And the land of Canaan, which was the name prior to Israel. <clears throat> which was also promised to Abraham. Uh, <clears throat> Over and above this, the exodus in itself is the action through which God had acquired for himself a people of his own from amongst all the peoples of the earth. The covenant of Sinai defines and sanctions in a solemn way the relationship that arose between God and Israel in by means of the exodus. But all that really means is that Prior to the exodus, prior to Moses coming into the scene, the Jewish people had no formal structure of a faith. They lived by their tribal customs. They lived through the faith of Abraham that was handed down through all of the uh, parents and relationships down through the ages. And that, again, is one true God who made heaven and earth and all things. In succeeding history, however, the Sinai Covenant, and we'll talk a lot more about the Sinai Covenant next week, uh, proved to be an unstable institution because Israel showed herself incapable of remaining loyal to what was covenanted. 
The uninterrupted experience of sin in the history of the people induced the prophets, well, we're talking 11th, 10th, uh, 11th century, no, more like 10th or 9th century B.C., the prophets, <clears throat> uh, to proclaim that in the context of the covenant, uh, Israel is inevitably doomed to malediction and judgment. Finally, the destruction of Samaria, the northern part of Israel, and the exile of Judah, the southern Israel, the northern one happened in the 8th century and the southern one in the 6th century, which brought to nothing the gift of the promised land, that is because it was taken away from them, uh, put the seal on the curse of the covenant. The prophet Jeremiah declared that the Sinai covenant had been irredeemably shattered. At the same time, however, the same prophets turned to the future with hope, founded in the word of God and in a new definitive saving intervention, intervention on his part, taking the shape of a new covenant. And that, of course, was by Jesus Christ. Now, let me just digress a little bit here. When we talk about, in this case, the uh, uninterrupted experience of sin in the history of the people uh, and doomed to a malediction and judgment, we cannot just throw all of the Jewish people at that time into one big basket and say they're all condemned. Remember, most of the people at that particular time period, that is between the time of Abraham and the time of Moses, a period of roughly 500 years, right? most of the people were illiterate. doesn't mean they were dumb. It means they did not have any experience or knowledge of reading or writing. They had to follow their lead leaders. And remember, even there, they were pulled apart, and we'll talk about this in future age, uh, future classes, uh, about the judges and uh, the kings and so forth and how those came about. But they had to follow the leaders, and whatever the leaders said or did was accepted because they didn't know any better. They had no way to compare. They couldn't read or write. Right. So you can't just throw them all into one big basket. Let us go on. The new covenant. And I say new covenant, remember at our masses, when the priest holds up the chalice at the time of the consecration, he says this is the cup of the new and eternal covenant. That is the sign that was sealed by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but it reappears every single time the priest consecrates uh, the bread and wine at a mass. Right. So, the new covenant, new and eternal covenant, eternal meaning that there will be no more. 
The old covenant has been done away with, and the new covenant is now in place, and it's either you follow it or not. The new covenant was, in fact, sanctioned by the sacrifice of Christ. The words pronounced by Jesus over the chalice of the Eucharist at the time of the Last Supper contain an evident allusion to the words of Moses. But to them, Jesus adds mention of the expiatory uh, value of the blood he was to shed. In this way, he claims for his own the mission of universal salvation entrusted to the servant of Yahweh. And that servant of Yahweh is in what we call the uh, suffering servant portion of the book of uh, Isaiah, chapters 50 through 55. The sacrifice of the new covenant, then, is not just a simple communion rite. In other words, our mass is not just a simple communion rite but an expiation, or better, an efficacious sacrifice of communion, capable of truly bringing humanity to God, precisely because it is capable of bringing about a true and radical expiation of sins. None of the sacrifices of the old Jewish faith could do that. And that is why animal sacrifice was abolished after the death and resurrection of Christ and the destruction of the temple because it was no longer acceptable to God. But in the eyes of the Jewish people, they say it was abolished because there was no more temple in which to fulfill the sacrifice. So they look at it differently because King David was the one that made the temple of Jerusalem the one and only temple and the one and only place that animal sacrifice uh, for the forgiveness of sins and other purposes could be officially done. All right. Now, after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., uh, they could not do that any longer. But that really wasn't the reason. Part of God's plan was the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. was to signify that God has withdrawn the first covenant and has replaced it with the new and eternal covenant. The reason that I bring that up in importance is because the Jewish people looked upon the temple and the holy, what was in the Holy of Holies as the indication of God's presence among them. And that was true for a while. But as they refused to follow the teachings of God through Moses, and turn to idolatry and other wrongdoings, uh, that was gradually withdrawn. Right. Let me just finish here for a minute, Karen. 
The sacrifice of the new covenant then is not simply a communion rite, but an expiation, or better still, an efficacious sacrifice of communion capable of truly bringing about, bringing humanity to God and God to man, precisely because it is capable of bringing about a true and radical expiation of personal sins. This was to be developed beautifully in Hebrews chapter 9, where the mission of Jesus as mediator of the new covenant is explained in the light of the sacrifice of the right. And it <clears throat> goes back to the Jewish day of atonement and its purpose. Karen? Yeah. And since, since the idea of animal sacrifice was abolished way back, you know, in the first century, uh, their form of sacrifice is uh, mostly just prayers and uh, the sort of the honoring, not worshiping, but the honoring of the scrolls, which are really the uh, first five books of the Bible. All right. But, you know, they don't even recognize the fact that the first book, Genesis, wasn't written until long after all of the other historical events took place. Uh, that's just thrown in there together. And the thing is, they don't read their own Jewish writings. Most of what I'll be teaching you has come from the Jewish uh, writings of the Bible. But as I said last week, even though most of these writings, particularly in the prophets, talk about the beauty of God and the, and the Psalms are beautiful prayers, but they don't follow them themselves. Now, let me give you an example. Most of the Psalms were not written as personal prayers. They were written for act, um, they were written for ceremonies, and the ceremonies would take place in in the temple uh, because most of the uh, psalms were written long before the second century B.C. They were written over a long period of time and brought together in a book around the second century B.C. Uh, uh, but the Jewish people do not honor their own writings. They don't look back at them as examples or as instruction. And that is what they really should do. Uh, most of the people, you know, once a man is, uh, I think they call it consecrated as a rabbi, he's sort of left on his own. He has no central control, no central authority, and no creed, no central creed that all of them believe in. Well, they 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 have a, a regular program in uh, well, they say Jewish um, university down in Los Angeles, and they have a regular program that establishes for themselves uh, and teaches men to become rabbis. Now they're even turning to women to become rabbis, which is very rare and just very recent. Yeah. 
But I don't want to get into a lot of, again, bashing of the Jewish people. That's not what I'm up here for. All right? But I, at the same time, I can't ignore it. Um, and I have to explain the difference. Again, in the early days, most of the people could not read or write, and therefore they had to follow the leaders. And that is why Jesus condemns the Pharisees, because they were the majority of the leaders at his time. And that's why he was so difficult or hard on them, because they were not leading the people properly. They were not teaching the people properly. If you go back to the prophet Ezekiel, there's a whole chapter in Ezekiel devoted to the good shepherds and the bad shepherds. Well, what he's referring to really is the good leaders uh, and those that should be. And he's saying that they are condemned because the shepherds are not leading the Jewish people as they should. And that he is going to take the Jewish people away from them and establish his own uh, concepts, his own teaching, and he himself will teach. And of course, that's all in reference to the church at a future time. He even talks about taking their stony hearts and replacing it with a new spiritual heart, which is in reference to the Holy Spirit. It, uh, I think that Isaiah and uh, Ezekiel are probably two of the most important prophets that are in the Bible. And their writings are absolutely beautiful. But they were all, you know, ex- exiled or executed, uh, one or the other, um, by their own people. Anyone have questions about the idea of covenant? Because in the new covenant that we have signified and sealed by the death of Jesus Christ, we are offered in a, in a way the same thing. We are offered community, that is, the communion of saints. We are offered land, in a way, which is heaven. And we are offered God's love and protection, which is eternal life. That makes sense? And that's it. And Jesus is saying, through all of the writings, and the church is saying that Jesus is the doorway to heaven. And you must go through that doorway because there is no other. There is one passage, I forgot which of the Gospels it's in, offhand, but it talks about Jesus as being the sheep gate. Now, that might sound rather distasteful, uh, but what he's referring to uh, is that sheep at that particular, uh, shepherds, I should say, at that particular time uh, would find a place that was uh, prior, uh, safe for the flocks that he was tending and could not get out of the enclosed area. In fact, many times the shepherd would bed down in the gate 
so that if any sheep tried to get out, he would be immediately awakened. Or if any wolves tried to get in, he would be immediately awakened. And that is the reference that Jesus means when he calls himself the sheep gate. That every Christian who accepts Christ as Lord and Savior must go through him in order to get to heaven. Now, obviously, there are going to be some exceptions to that rule, particularly people who have never heard of Christ. And, of course, with television and radio, that seems to be dwindling down to virtually none. All right, today, if you haven't heard in some way, shape, or form, um, you know, you must be living in another planet. Uh, so it's important that you understand that because, and this is a point that I wanted really to make today, is why do we study all of this stuff? It is because we, and I representing the church in teaching, do not want you to fall into the same trap as some of those poor people that back at the time of Abraham that, or even Moses and later, who just followed along with uh, the leaders of the party or the church or whatever, but not really taking into your own mind and heart what God has promised you, what God means or should mean to you. So, that is why I teach. Because I feel God has blessed me in so many ways. I was just telling somebody this morning that I'm working right now on my friend that I mentioned earlier this morning and his funeral and so forth. It is the fifth funeral I've had to take care of in five years. So I've had my share of problems and sorrow. But God lifts me up to know that I am helping him and he is working through me. So I have no choice and I have no desire to do anything but constantly talk about God and his goodness and what he's given us. So that is why we do what we do up here and that is what the church is all about. Trying to get you as individuals to absorb this on a personal basis. That God really wants you to have a personal relationship with him and to work with him. And by doing so, the sorrows that you have will be minimized. But not, you know, you're not going to avoid all sorrows uh, or troubles or trials but they will be worked out. Uh, I was on the phone last night for over an hour and a half to almost 9.30 or something like that with this family trying to develop a, a little program for the funeral service on Friday. By that time I was just really beat uh, because all day was really doing the same kind of thing, buttoning down all the last details. But the Lord 
you know, Sun Hao said to me, it'll be all right. We'll work it out and you'll get through it. And here I am. So, okay. Let's go on. I don't want to overdo our time here. Um, obviously, Abraham wasn't going to live forever. And in Genesis, if you've read it, there are a number of really strange comments there about certain people living 300 years and 400 years and Methuselah lived 600 plus years, etc., etc. That is a way of the writer not having any records to go back on to sort of fill in the time between creation and the time of Abraham. So, take it with a, uh, you know, a grain of salt and and just ignore those unusual uh, lines or lengths of, of longevity there. Uh, humanity has not basically changed since God created uh, man as he currently is. And whether he created us out of a handful of dust or uh, some former living creature we have no way of knowing and it doesn't make that much difference once God has breathed into us the soul and put us under uh, the whole realm of humanity we are the same so humanity hasn't really changed a great deal in four to thousand years or before okay but it <coughs> The writer has no way to measure that time difference between Adam and Eve and Abraham. And so he puts these outlandish uh, years of life for each of them. And just ignore that. Because the Jewish people love to exaggerate. And that's part of their culture and that's part of their literature. They exaggerate it. Uh, just think about Jesus feeding the 5,000 people, or in another case, 4,000 people, and then somebody adds, and that didn't include the women and children. No, 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 no. That could not possibly be, because I've been to the place where that event should have and did probably take place. There's just no way you could fit, you know, 5,000, let alone twice that amount for women and children in that area. So, you know, when the monks or whoever copied from the original writing to copy after copy after copy, well, you know what it is if you've taken just a piece of paper like this, and you made a copy of it, and you made a copy of that copy, and another copy of, you know how it, it sort of wears down after a while. Well, same thing. So, in the Bible, you got to be very, very careful when it comes to numbers. And it's better that you just don't think about them at all, or ignore them. Okay? Because there's just absolutely no way. If you read the book of Exodus, which I would like you to read this coming week between now and next class, 
and you get to chapters 24, 5, and 6, um, where Moses is commanded to build the Ark of the Covenant, and it talks about how the Ark of the Covenant was made with all this gold on it. Well, you know, they would have had to have a trainload of gold to put all, put all of that gold on there. And out in the desert, you know, where gold requires smelting, you know, and refining and polishing. They have no way to do that. And therefore, most of that was written, of course, at a time long afterwards when uh, there were such uh, capabilities. Uh, and it was probably not until uh, the time of King David in the 10th century when gold could be hammered down into gold leaf and applied in that way. But not out in the desert uh, after they escaped from Egypt. I mean, they grumbled and griped about not having enough food, and yet they had a, a whole trainload of gold. Ah, no. So you got to be careful about the accuracy. Don't get hung up in the words. So many people say, well, now, this is the word of God. Now, this is the word of God. Well, you got to be careful. Yes, it is God speaking through Scripture. But it is not the words of God. In other words, man wrote this. Or several men wrote this. No women. Several men wrote this using their own imagination as best they could. So, you know, you can't take the words word for word, as we would say. You've got to look at the message. And, you know, just kind of ignore some of the exaggerations or the things that are just incredible. Yes? Yes. Yes. Probably, that's probably not accurate. Yeah. But you see, another thing is, there were no universal calendars in those days. So how was anybody going to keep uh, record, you know, by moons? You know, most of the calendars were uh, lunar calendars also. So how were they going to keep records? And why would they keep records? You know, no person had his own personal calendar. They can't write it down. Can't no. write it down anyway. That's right. Um, so you got to be very, very careful. Now, when Gregory the Great went back and changed the Julian calendar, which didn't come into existence until the first century B.C. and was not accepted outside of the Roman Empire. But in the 12th, I think, uh, 12th century A.D., uh, Gregory the Great, I could be wrong in that time period, Gregory the Great modified the Julian calendar and reestablished by going back and trying to establish records of who were the great leaders of the time, or who were the great events of the time, and reconstructed the calendar, uh, which became the Gregorian calendar, which is now used universally throughout the world. 
except for certain things, like the Jewish people still have their own private calendar that dates back to Abraham. Um, but even the, Jew, the Gregorian calendar uh, is off as further established later on when more records were available. It's still off by roughly seven years. All right? So, when we say that Jesus was born in year one, well, you got to be a little, you know, can't be too exact on that one, but it was probably more like uh, minus four or five. Because, remember, when the Holy Family fled to Egypt, they didn't return until after the king was dead. All right? We're talking about Julius Caesar. He died in the 4th century B.C. So if Jesus was old enough to have gone to Egypt, stayed there for a while, and then come back, you know, it had to be born before what we call year one. Does that make sense? That's just a little minutia thrown in. Okay. Let's get back to a more important subject. Hmm? Did you already send it? Yeah. Oh, you did that too. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have to change hats for a minute. I want to get into the subject of the migration of Jacob and his family to Egypt because it is the basis for the whole idea and concept of the Jewish people uh, being in Egypt for uh, we don't know exactly how long, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 years. the whole idea came about because of a famine, famine in Israel and Egypt because of the Nile River flowing over its banks at least once a year had a lot of very fertile land and therefore there was food available and so virtually people from all over, all over the world of that time period uh, fled to Egypt for food, for substance, sustenance. Okay. So Jacob and his family also went down. There's a nice little story about how Joseph was sold to an Egyptian caravan and ended up uh, originally as a slave in Egypt and then rose to very great prominence and became a uh, second-hand man, you might say, to the Pharaoh. And so when his father and brothers and so forth came down, uh, Joseph sort of disguised himself and originally was going to punish them for what they did to him, but because it was part of God's plan, and I'll get to that in a minute, uh, he decided otherwise and welcomed them with open arms and eventually of course made himself known to them because we're talking about many years difference 
and they didn't recognize him at first. Um, and because of his lofty status in Egypt, um, he welcomed them, and the Pharaoh welcomed them and gave them the chosen land of Goshen. Now, why did all this happen if God wanted Abraham to go from the land of Ur to Palestine, or Israel as we call it today? Again, part of his plan. When families began to increase and multiply, they began to spread out. God did not want that to happen. And so by bringing them into the land of Goshen, they were somewhat corralled, uh, not like prisoners or anything, but they corralled by natural elements. Uh, the Mediterranean Sea on uh, the northwest side, uh, the Nile River on the west side, the mountains and so forth on the east, etc. But the land of Goshen was very fertile and therefore they were as guests at that time. But you go 400 years later, you have all new people, you have a new pharaoh who lost sight because there were no records of all of these uh, Hebrew people as they were called. And therefore, the Pharaoh got uh, very concerned that there were so many Hebrew people that they might, in the event of some problem, uh, might raise up and conquer the Egyptian people. So he put them into slavery, and he had the firstborn, uh, no, all male, all male children under two years slaughtered so that there wouldn't be any more after a period of time. However, through a little bit of conniving, you might say, Moses' mother secrets him away, and he is just miraculously found by the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's servant, and the Pharaoh's daughter, I should say, and her servant. And then the Pharaoh's daughter takes this child, who she finds in this little basket floating down the river, how convenient, uh, part of God's plan again, and she raises him in her own family, within the, the palace and all of that. So he becomes a very prominent man. This is Moses. Okay. But Moses gets into a, a problem when he realizes who he is, and his background, his real background, his real mother, who was nursing him all along. <coughs> and he gets into a fight with an Egyptian and murders him. So Moses runs off to uh, back to Palestine. But that's getting ahead of us. The whole idea of all of this migration of all of Jacob and his family and the development of that family in Egypt was again to develop what has uh, will become the nation of Israel. And that will not really be established until after, and we'll talk about this next week, until after they uh, escape 
or are released by the Pharaoh uh, from Egypt and get out into the desert and receive the Ten Commandments, which we'll talk about again next week. Right. But this is the whole idea of God's plan constantly working and why God puts up with the <clears throat> infidelity and uh, some of the foolish things that the Jewish people have done then and now uh, is because his plan of salvation is yet not complete. And it will not be completed until the end of time. Well, that is the role of the Holy Spirit to take all of the concepts that were developed throughout the Bible history and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and try to get mankind to see those benefits and to work with them and to accept them and live by them in order to bring us back into heaven at the time we die or at the end of all time. Now, for those people who do not accept or totally ignore willful will, oh, excuse me. <clears throat> for those people who totally neglect or willfully neglect the teachings of Christ, um, we, in our own way of thinking, and through what the church has told us, those people will unfortunately not enter the kingdom of heaven. And since there is no other choice, the... <coughs> The result of not entering the kingdom of heaven at the time of death or at the end of time is damnation. It seems harsh, but it isn't because God has given us all of the opportunity, the information, the why and wherefore and so forth. That's the whole purpose of the sacrament of reconciliation. Uh, that's the whole purpose of our Mass, to remember what Christ did and therefore take advantage of it. That's the whole purpose of the Church. As you see, there are no more uh, Abrahams, there's no more Moses, there's no more Davids, uh, there's no more judges, there's no more prophets, because the Church is now the spokesperson for God. The Church is an extension of God. And if we don't listen to him and the church, then the result will be eternal damnation. That sounds like a harsh note to end. <laughs> but unfortunately, that, that is the case. Now, any questions? Yes. I would recommend that you bring them every week, yes. The question was, should we bring, should you bring your Bibles every week? And I would recommend that because you just never know when I'm going to ask you to go into something. Or I will read, but you might want to follow. Yeah. I know they're kind of heavy, but, uh, this is probably the heaviest one there is. Uh, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs>
But uh, nevertheless, they're worthwhile, and I would suggest you do. Also, please bring your handouts, because you never know when we might want to go back to them. So I strongly recommend that you have perhaps a small little three-ring binder like this, or a folder like Joe has there. Yeah, very, very important. Okay. Chet? Who were both of these parents? Moses is the de- is a descendant of Jacob, yes. And if you read the early part of the book of Exodus, that will answer your question. <laughs> The part you didn't have to read last time. Yeah. Now, if you read the early part of the book of Exodus, it will talk about who Moses' parents were. I don't think the father is mentioned, uh, but he did have brother and sister that we know of. You know, his brother was Aaron and his sister was Miriam. Yeah. All right. Yes, Joe. I have actually something a little lighter than damnation. I'm just curious. Were the songs sung? Like we sing, were they sung in the Jewish? Uh, yes, and, almost all, all exclusively them. sung. It was. Sung. Yes. So is that why? Because when I was a child, of course, they didn't sing them. So <laughs> now we do. Is that? Yes. Yes. The songs, the songs, were almost all songs written for ceremonies, not for private um, devotions. Now there was no reason why they couldn't have picked them up and use them as private devotions, and I assume that some people did. But private prayer was not universally recommended or preached because they always felt the people would go off on their own. Well, they went off on their own anyways. Yes. Yes. Any other questions? You know, when you said that uh, uh, they had name chains to indicate that they had a certain plan. Yes. And is that the same reason why the popes uh, take on a name? Yes. It's the same concept. Yes. Yes. The question here was, did the popes, or do the popes take a special name uh, in the same way that Jesus changed the names of several people in the Bible, and the answer is yes. In fact, if you recall, I don't know if they do it today, uh, but when a person is confirmed, or at least it was when I was a kid, uh, we all took special names. Yes, and that was the same reason. Uh, it signified that we were making a commitment. I can't even remember what mine was. Oh, Joseph, yeah, I think. Anyways, um, yes. Now, there were also several people in the New Testament whose names were changed. Also, you know, Simon was named, was changed to Peter, and Saul was changed to Paul. Remember, Jesus' name was uh, signified and remembered actually given to Mary and Joseph by the angel, and the same with John the Baptist, 
his name was given to uh, his mother and father by angels. And so there were a number of people that we can look back at and say they had a very special role in God's plan of salvation. Yeah. Well, to my knowledge, uh, Sarah or Sarai was the only woman where the name was changed. I don't, I can't think of any other. Yeah. And I don't, well, she did have a special role, but of course Mary, it couldn't have been greater than Mary. Uh, but no. Um, no. And there was a lot of others that had prominent roles, but the, you know, David, for example, and the prophets, none of them had name changes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're still looking. The reason, the main reason of Jewish people not accepting Christ is because they expected God to establish the kingdom of God on earth and get rid of the Romans. I'm talking about at the time of Christ. Okay. And because Christ had no intentions of, of that, Christ's whole idea and concept was a spiritual release and freedom and liberation. They, the Jewish people, then and now, still don't accept that whole idea of God and his personal relationship with mankind. And yet our whole faith is based on that. And that's the major, one of the major differences. Is theirs is land-based, everything that they worship and think about is able, we're able, they are able to feel and touch and talk to and so forth and so on. Um, if that is in case, then they, you know, they just don't believe it. Uh, God gave them a direct command for many, many things. And they kept saying, oh yeah, Lord, we'll do whatever you ask, but we'll do it our way. And again, it was due to this refusal to accept the spiritual concept that Jesus Christ was talking about all along. With that, let's end our class. Lord, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for the many graces and blessings. We are only touching the beginnings of our understanding in this journey through Judaism and its history. So we ask that you help us to open our minds and our hearts and truly understand what you're telling us. And at the same time, help us to see the beauty of Christianity, and particularly the Catholic Church. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.